Good morning. Thinking back to last week as we talked about not being deceived, I, I found it interesting, at least from my vantage point, that last week a whole bunch of things started to come out about just how deceived we were. And I think the timing was, at least from my standpoint, suspicious. God is telling us not to be deceived, right? And then we find out, oh my goodness, over the last couple of years, and not that it was a news alert to most of us, but I think some people are really starting to realize you just can't trust anyone but God. You just can't put your trust in anything but God. But the scripture tells us, and Peter tells us, to be holy. He encourages us that God tells us to be holy as he is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Because if it means to be God, well, we can't do that. If it means to be like God, well, it means we can't do that. If it means to be perfect, well, of course we can't do that. So what does it mean? Why would God tell us to be holy if we know we can't do any of those things? And I could give you a spiritual answer. I could tell you that, well, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be holy. But that's actually not exactly the way to interpret that passage. The word holy means set apart. By definition, God is holy, holy, holy. And he is perfect. But when God tells us to be holy, what he's really encouraging us to do is to be set apart, sanctified, consecrated to him, to be different apart from the world in which we live. Now, in order to do that, it requires us to understand who God is and also who we're not. We're not God. We're not like God. Apart from God, we can do nothing. But we are called to be separate. So as we've been talking each week a little bit about the lessons in the book of Revelation, we've also tried to look at this practically and ask ourselves the question, what is God speaking to us today? Because as we talk about things in the future, it's helpful to know where the world is going. But as we talk about things in the present, it's more important to know who we're called to be. I can remember when I, I've read many commentaries on the book of Revelation, but I think it was Warren Wearsby's commentary uh, not a huge commentary, but it was, it was called Be Victorious. And I, one of the things I appreciate about his writings is there's always this sort of imperative, be this, be that. But to be victorious requires that when we study the book of Revelation, we're not looking at it trying to gain a perspective on future events. We're not trying to predict the future. We're trying to find comfort and encouragement in the word of God so that we can be holy. And so this morning, that's my encouragement to you. As we study chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, I want us to know that if God called us to be holy, we can, in his power and by his strength, be holy in him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And this morning, we open our hearts to your word. We desire to hear from you. We desire to understand your word more. But most of all, we, we desire that we would live our lives for you, for your glory, that you would live your life, the power that you have in and through us, and that we would truly be holy as you are holy. Living our lives separated from this world, not a part of it, not skating the edge, not, not sitting on the fence or walking the line, but distinctly different from the world around us, that all the world would see and know that we serve someone other than the governments of this world, the culture, social media, big tech, all of the voices that are out there trying to tell us what's right and what's wrong when we know your word teaches us the truth. 
May we be separate. May we be consecrated. May we be holy. May we live for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're introduced or reintroduced now to a group of Jews during the last days called the 144,000 sealed servants of God. Sometimes they're just referred to as the 144,000, but it's important to remember they're sealed servants of God. We were first introduced to them in chapter 7. We're now reintroduced to them in chapter 14. In chapter 14, we see the end of their ministry, which is a glorious welcoming in heaven. In chapter 7, we saw the beginning of their ministry. Let's look just at verse 1 to sort of reintroduce ourselves to this group of people. In chapter 14 in the book of Revelation, in verse 1, John writes, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and that's in heaven, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These are the sealed servants of God. Jesus saw the Lamb of God, who is Jesus, Standing on Mount Zion, again, the Mount Zion in heaven, it's a reference, and I'll share this in a minute, it's a reference to a heavenly glory, not an earthly glory, not yet. And he's there with the 144,000 servants of God who were sealed. The Lamb was standing in heavenly Jerusalem. And there is a heavenly Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, that will ultimately, in chapter 21, come out of heaven and be in heaven our world, in this universe, but at this point, there is an earthly Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is still heavenly. It's, it's not with us yet. We're looking forward to that. That's actually our great hope, and that hope is experienced after the millennium. Sometimes referred to as the eternal state, it is the end of our existence as it's recorded in God's word. Now, what happens after that is anyone's guess. I'm sure it's going to be great stuff, but I can tell you this. We start in a garden where God creates a paradise in Genesis. And we end, as we'll see in Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, in a garden where paradise is restored. God will bring all of creation, as it relates to man, full circle. And we will inherit the rewards of all eternity with our Lamb, the Lamb of God, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's what's going to happen. But these are the things that will happen along the way. So there he is, the Lamb of God, in Jerusalem, in heaven, the city of the living God, referred to in the book of Hebrews. Zion, by the way. Zion means sunny or a height. It refers to the southeastern hill of earthly Jerusalem. It's a word that's used over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, This name refers to the ancient city of Jerusalem, but it also refers to God's chosen people, Israel. Zion can also refer to the people of Israel, as well as the place. It refers to the heavenly city as well, and even to the church of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Zion means the place where God is. By definition, by context, wherever God is, we can say that's Zion. So it's a word that can be used of heavenly Jerusalem. It's a word that can be used of earthly Jerusalem. But we know who the Lamb is. Amen? We know Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this vision isn't all that difficult to understand or to interpret. But I want to point out that Jesus will not return to earthly Jerusalem until the end of these seven years of tribulation. This is taking place 
toward the end of those seven years of tribulation. But the end has not yet come. Now, let's look a little bit more closely at the 144,000 servants of God. They are from, as we learned in chapter 7, this is a bit of a recap, they are from all the tribes of Israel, so they are Jews, and they are there standing with the Lamb in heaven. And the first logical question is, well, the last time we saw them in chapter 7, they were on the earth. So between the time in chapter 7 when they were on the earth and the time in chapter 14 when they're in heaven, things have taken place. In fact, back in chapter 7, we learned that they were sealed before any harm came to the earth. So that would have been during the first three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation. They were sealed. They were protected. And each of these individuals is a Jew, and they're sealed by their tribal ancestry. They know that they're descended from the tribe of Benjamin, or Judah, or Ephraim, or Manasseh. They know that. So for many years, there have been people who have tried to interpret who the 144,000 are. I've heard interpretations, it's the church. I've heard interpretations that it's, um, well, in fact, I think it was the Jehovah Witnesses who determined that they were the 144,000. The little problem came in is when their membership exceeded 144,000, then they had some splaining to do. So a problem with trying to interpret this any other way than Jews as you can. It, it falls apart. Everything falls apart. So we, we, we just read it as it is, and we believe the word of God as it's recorded for us. So each of these individuals is a Jew. In fact, they're Messianic Jews. They know their tribal lineage. They know their genealogy. They know God. They know Jesus. They're, they're responsible. Their ministry is responsible for a great multitude of Gentiles that come out of the tribulation and into faith. And that's recorded again in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Excuse me, 9 through 17. Now, we know they have the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the name of God, the Father, on their foreheads. Now, I'm not sure if that's literal, that they had that sort of tattooed or marked on their head. I think the idea is that they're sealed of God. They have God's character, God's name upon them in that way. And it is visible. It's probably visible in some way. I'm not sure exactly how. But clearly it is visible. They are sealed. They are marked. And it's interesting that this is in contrast to the mark of the beast that we talked about last week in chapter 13. Those that reject God will receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand, their right hand, and that will distinguish that they have rejected Jesus Christ and accepted this beast, this world ruler, as their God, and they'll worship not only that Antichrist, they will worship the dragon who is Satan. At that point, as we'll see in next week's study, there is no hope. See, the thing about the world we live in today is that you can reject Jesus Christ up until the last few seconds of your life. And as you pass into the next world, into heaven or into eternity, you can make that decision right up until the last minute. I don't suggest you wait that long. Most of us are not going to have that opportunity, I suspect, where we're cognizant and aware and, 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 and you know, we go through life, oh, I'm going to reject Jesus my whole life in the last minute. I'm going to sneak in to heaven because I'm going to make a decision. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? And then you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ in this world, which is 
a major blessing that you would be missing out on. So that's kind of silly. But even so, that's a possibility. Because it's appointed for a man or a woman once to die and then the judgment. But in the last days, things will be different. Because people in the world will be given an opportunity, a choice. They will be given an opportunity to reject God and his son Jesus Christ and receive a mark which signifies that they have rejected God and they will worship the dragon who is Satan. So before they die, they'll have to make that decision. In fact, we're told that if you make a decision in those days for Jesus Christ, you'll be beheaded, you'll be martyred for your faith. So I suspect that the way that these 144,000 find their way into the presence of God in chapter 14 is that they are martyred. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought you said, Pastor Tim, that they were sealed servants of God, that they were sealed, that they have the, the mark of their father and his son, Jesus Christ, on their head. How could they be harmed? Well, The thing we have to remember, the two witnesses in chapter 11 were protected until they were not protected, until God decided that it was time for them to be martyred. And the same will most likely be true for this 144,000. The same is true for the martyrs throughout the centuries. You're invincible until God decides to take you home. But as we look at this, realize each of us... We experience persecutions, we experience trials and tribulations in this life, and God preserves us until he's decided it's time for us to be taken home. It doesn't mean God isn't faithful. It means God is faithful to protect you, that no harm would come to you until it's time for you to pass into eternity. And you think, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, listen, we all have to die. It's appointed for a man or a woman once to die, and then the judgment. But for those that are sealed, like these servants... When they die, oh, it's, you're inheriting a blessing. You're not losing anything, you're gaining everything. Understand that, please understand that. So these 144,000 are rejoicing, we'll see, in heaven, because they've lived their lives holy, separated to God and for God, and God has worked through their lives, and now that it's time for them to end their labors in this world and enter into heaven, they're not sorry. They're not thinking, oh, what a horrible life I had. I only wish that I didn't have to die. Not at all. And so understand, this is a time of rejoicing, and entering into eternity, regardless of whether we die in our sleep or are killed in a terrible train wreck, You have to understand that it is just simply God's will and his timing that determines when we stand before his throne. Amen? Now, as we look at this, they were sealed by God, but martyred. Now, the martyrs throughout the century were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a reference to this mark of the name. I think it really speaks to the empowering of the Holy Spirit more than anything else. But they are likely among the fellow servants that were talked about in chapter 6. When the souls of the martyrs were under the altar in heaven in this vision, uh, they were told that there would be more that would be martyred. Their brothers who, who had yet to be martyred. And this is what we see in chapter 14. So yes, there will be martyrdom on a large scale in this time we call the time of the end or the time of wrath, which is the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation. Now, they may have been raptured or translated into heaven. They may have been. 
but they were probably martyred and resurrected like their brothers, the two witnesses, which we saw in chapter 11. And we now see them in heaven with Jesus, praising God and redeemed from the earth. Redeemed, purchased back from the earth. You redeem, uh, to use that word properly, you redeem your house once you pay it off. You redeem your car when the car payments are made. You, redeem, you fully own something when you redeem it. That's the idea of being redeemed. Now, God will remove his servants from this earth before he pours out his wrath on the earth. Do you remember Genesis 19 when Lot and his family were in Sodom in the cities of the plains and Abraham encountered the Lord in physical form, in human form, with two angels and they were going into Sodom to really to bring judgment. And God reveals this to Abraham. And he kind of bargains with God, and he essentially says, look, if there's ten righteous people, will you save the city? Will you spare the city? And he said, I'll spare the city if there's ten righteous people. Now, when you think about that, he was going to spare a city like Sodom if there were ten righteous people. What does that mean? What does that tell us? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God isn't out there waiting to destroy, you know, I get like that. You get like that. We get like that. We want an entire city to be destroyed because they defy God. We want a culture to be destroyed because they defy God. But God looks at a culture. He looks at a city. And if he finds, I'm not going to say 10, but if he finds a remnant of righteous people, that city, that culture can be spared. Now, that's by God's design. So... When you look at our culture today and you say, like I do, this is so wicked, how much longer is this going to last? I mean, my goodness, how much more insanity do we have to endure before you bring judgment and you take your vengeance on those who defy you? We look at it that way, but God doesn't look at it that way. God looks at an opportunity for people to come to repentance. And so, and so, as we look at this, let's recognize that this is a moment of grace in our world. That is, what we're going through right now is a time of God's grace. This time of tribulation that we're talking about in the future is a time of God's grace. Oh, it gives people an opportunity to stand up and be counted and be separate and be holy and unfortunately pay for that with their earthly lives. That's true. But it is still a time of grace. It is still a time of grace. When Abraham spoke to God about the destruction of Sodom, if only 10 people were righteous, God would not have destroyed the cities of the plains. You know what was really sad about Sodom? Not so much the evil that was taking place, because we have evil on the same scale, if not on a greater scale today. It's that there were not even 10 righteous people left in the cities of the plains. Now, Lot, though not a perfect man, was considered righteous. The New Testament calls him righteous Lot. I suspect that he was considered righteous, his wife, his daughters. He no doubt had sons and other other daughters or, or other family, but they weren't considered. So they had, what did they have, like four people maybe? So they didn't even make the, the cutoff of ten, but... It's interesting that when the angels came to bring destruction to that city, they told Lot, 
and his wife and his two daughters to leave the city because they couldn't destroy that city until they brought the righteous out of the city. So, God's wrath will not fall upon Christians or the righteous. The world's wrath may fall upon us. Martyrdom may be our our, our fate. The world may put us to death. But understand, you and I, we will never experience the wrath of God if we are in Jesus Christ. Amen? So when the wrath of God is being poured out on the world in the last days, it's not going to touch us. And the sealed servants of God are protected from the wrath of God. And I think that's what it means to be sealed. But it doesn't say that they're sealed in a way where they're protected from the wrath of the, lamb, of the beast, only from the wrath of the Lamb. So, during the last days, these individuals will not be protected from the wrath of man, but they will be protected from the wrath of God. You know, if I had to make a choice... I'd rather be protected from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ than be protected from the wrath of the world and the devil. And that's exactly the choice that you make when you say, I want to be holy. You say, I want to be separate. I want to be counted with God. I know that in being holy as he is holy, I'm separate. I'm consecrated. I'm I'm protected. I'm sealed from the wrath that can destroy you for all eternity. But it doesn't mean that you won't experience the wrath of this world. As many people are finding out today, if you stand up for your values in a town hall meeting or a board of ed meeting, you many times are going to be persecuted. If you stand up for life, you you may have the FBI send a SWAT team into your home to arrest you in front of your children. These things are happening in our world. They happen frequently. You may stand up for life, you may stand up for righteousness, you may stand up for for goodness and morality, and all the world will hate you. They'll speak all manner of evil against you, they'll persecute you, they might even kill you. That's what it means to be holy. That's the very definition of what it means when we say, be holy as I am holy, God says. To be holy is to be separate, set apart, different, and it's going to cost you a lot It may even cost you your life. But to be holy means to be separate, to be different. And these 144,000 are exactly that, and we are called to be that today. And aren't you glad that today we're not in a situation where if you reject this world system and and, and, and cling to Jesus Christ and you're holy in him, that they're not going to behead you, not yet? You don't have to make that kind of choice just yet. But every day, you and I, we have to make choices. Every time we decide what we're going to believe about who God is and what the world is and and, and whether or not something's right or wrong and someone's talking about uh, some cultural issue and you make a decision to stand with the word of God, every time you do that, you're making a choice to be holy. Not perfect. I didn't say perfect. I don't think that's what we're talking about. To be separate, to be different. And as the world makes a decision to follow Satan, the church and God's people continue to follow after God himself. We follow after Jesus faithfully. That's the encouragement to be victorious, to be holy. Now, God will remove his servants before he pours out his wrath on the earth. And if there are servants of God, for example, the people of Israel we know are protected for three and a half years. But if there are servants of God on the earth during that time, the wrath of God will not be poured out on them. What I mean is whatever wrath God sends upon this earth, it will not touch a sealed servant of God. 
I do believe that most of the sealed servants of God, if not all, during this time will be martyred not by experiencing God's wrath, but by experiencing the wrath of this world and this world system. So, what is going to happen over the next few years to decades? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is the dead in Christ will rise first at the rapture. We don't know when this will take place, but the dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to be given their resurrected bodies. So anyone who's died in Christ since the time of Christ until now, anyone who's died in Christ will be raised to life and be caught up into the throne of God. And you're thinking, well, where are they now? Well, you, you can't think that way because heaven is outside of the space-time continuum. So I'm just going to say it this way, and I like to describe it in this way. If 40 years ago a relative of yours in Christ died, and last week someone else in Christ passed away, and then like next Tuesday we're all raptured, then we're all going to get into heaven really in the same instant because heaven is outside of time. So don't get into this thinking of, oh, well, what happens, what happens to all these people? What are they, in soul sleep? That's a term that's sometimes used. Well, they're just kind of hanging out. They're like asleep, and then they're going to be wake, you know, they're going to be awoken. But no, 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 no. Don't think of it that way. In an instant, the dead in Christ will rise first. And, and what about those who are alive when that happens? Well, this is part of the rapture as well. Not just the dead in Christ rising, but those who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. I refer you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. So if you're alive when this moment happens, then you will never experience physical death. You'll just sort of be translated, raptured, changed in the twinkling of an eye, as the scriptures say, and you'll receive your resurrected body and also be caught up into heaven with the dead in Christ and forever be with the Lord. And by the way, Paul goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another with these words. In verse 18, I'm encouraging you with these words. But listen, don't say, oh, I only hope that I don't have to die and I can be in the rapture. So many people said that in the 70s. And they're not with us anymore. But that's okay, because guess what? The dead in Christ rise first. You get there. If you're holy in this life, your holy isn't set apart in the next. Amen? Well, there's also a great multitude that will come out of the great tribulation. We talked about them in chapter 7. So there's many who will, during the time of tribulation, come to know Christ, Gentiles and Jews. We already talked about the two witnesses. They're going to go up into heaven in a cloud. They're going to receive their resurrected bodies in front of everyone. Pretty awesome. So it's sort of a rapture of sorts just for those two individuals. And then there's those who are martyred during the tribulation. They're going to enter heaven. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. The 144,000 Jews will be redeemed from the earth. That's the point. So, whether you're holy now or then, you will be wholly set apart for God for all eternity. That's the most important question we ask ourselves this morning. Are you set apart? Do you belong to Christ? Are you living your life for Christ? Do you belong to him? Have you given your life to Christ? Because it doesn't matter after that. Everything is good. It's all good. It's all good news because regardless of what happens to you after that decision, after having made that decision, you need not fear death because it only brings everlasting life. That's an encouraging message. See, some churches would say amen. Amen? Okay. 
Let's get into verse 2. Now, in verse 2, chapter 14, we learn a few things. First, John goes on to say, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters. Have you ever heard the sound of a waterfall, like Niagara Falls or some large waterfall? That's a very loud sound. I heard a sound from heaven like like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure, and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So that description gives us some indication as to what these individuals were doing after they were sealed, after they were serving God. First, let's say that John heard a sound. It was like harpists playing their harps. And this is where we get that sort of classical understanding of heaven with, you know, angels on clouds playing harps. It's a little bit more detailed than that, but the idea of harps in heaven tells me something very important, though. First of all, there is worship music in heaven. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Are we glad? There's worship music in heaven. You know, it always baffled me that some types of congregations and denominations don't use music at all. Some just use singing. Some don't even do singing. They believe that perhaps this art form of music has been hijacked by the devil, and therefore you shouldn't entertain it at all. Uh, That makes me very upset. But I'll leave it at that. Uh, The other thing I sometimes hear is that there are sanctified forms of worship or sanctified forms of music And then that there are sanctified instruments. So, for example, the piano and the organ are sanctified, but the guitar is not. That makes me very upset. First of all, just a little point of contention. If you open up that piano right there, guess what's inside? Strings on what? A harp. It's actually called a harp. So, so much for that. You see, here's the thing. In heaven, I don't see any organs or even pianos, but I do see stringed instruments. So, those of you like myself that play stringed instruments, amen. So, the music is loud and powerful. Oh, I've heard tell that some would say the music, if it's going to be in church, needs to be soft and beautiful. It can't be loud and powerful. That's interesting because in heaven, it's loud and powerful. So, if you happen to use an amp or amplification system, Okay, right? Are you with me? I'm just kind of getting rid of some of these mis- misnomers, these, these, these false teachings about worship. Uh, it's also beautiful and sweet. Have you ever heard a harp? I mean, the most amazing thing about listening to a harp is, first of all, it is, I believe, if not one of the hardest instruments to learn. It's very difficult to play. But it is a beautiful instrument. And... That is what's described to to sort of give us an understanding or idea of what the music in heaven is going to be like. By the way, we are told in chapter 5 of this book that the 24 elders who represent the church each have a harp. I'm pretty excited about that. And it also is true that if you think about it with me, 
that the very voice of God was described in this way in chapter 1 and verses 10 and verse 15. The very voice of God sounds like this. Is it any wonder, really, that the voice of God would be loud and powerful, beautiful and sweet, sound like harps and actually be music itself? See, that doesn't, that doesn't phase me at all because I, I believe that the voice of God would sound like that. So whatever this is, this is an an incredible moment in heaven where these 144,000 are worshiping alongside of the church and all of the angels and all the heavenly creatures. God is there at the throne, at the center. And John heard the 144,000 servants singing what's called a new song. That is a song that is new because it's never been sung before. And they're singing it before the throne of God in heaven. They encircle the throne of God, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders. So you have this sort of concentric circles surrounding the throne, the the four living creatures, the church, the 24 elders. And then they're surrounded by the 144,000 who have come out of the earth. They've been redeemed from the earth. They have been martyred. They've given their lives as far as we can tell. And they sang a song that no one could learn except them. That is to say that a lot of people can sing songs. I've heard that if you're going to sing the blues, you have to suffer. I believe that. Have you ever heard someone really sing the blues? I mean, you, you look at them and say, oh, they know what they're talking about. I'm not going to imitate it because I don't want to get off track here. But when you sing the blues, you got to be a little sad. You know? But no one could learn this song except them. It may be a song about God's faithfulness to them during these years of tribulation that they could only sing. No one else could sing that. It may be a song about the harvest of souls that they brought about out of the Gentiles that we talked about in chapter 7 that only they could sing. And it may be a song about how they were redeemed from the earth, which only they can sing. But whatever it is, this speaks to their experience. You know that you have a new song? Each of us have a new song. A song that only we can sing. A song that describes your life in Christ and what God has done in your life. We call it a testimony. You can put it to music. You can write a song that's a testimonial. But even when you speak it, it's a new song. It's a a new word. It doesn't contradict the word of God. It's not the word of God. It's the word of God in your life bringing about a testimony. It speaks to who you are in Christ. I hope you have that new song this morning. Because when you get to heaven, you'll sing whatever it is that God has done for you for all eternity. You know, when I think about that, I wonder... There's long songs and short songs, right? Will, will, your, will your song be like a Bohemian Rhapsody? Will it be a very long song or will it be just sort of a ditty? Oh, God was so good. Amen. The end. Or is it going to be one of those long, drawn-out sagas of life because you have so much to say about who God is in your life? I hope, I hope that your new song gains verses and choruses each and every week. I really do. As God works in and through your life. Well, John described the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, these are the things we need to go over very quickly. First of all, it says that they did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. First of all, let me just stop. And let me say this. God will call them to be celibate. Them. Them. They will be called to be celibate. It will be necessary for them, given the time in which they live, to not be involved in having a family or being married. They'll be celibate. But 
they're not going to marry. So therefore, being involved in sexual relations would be defiling. If you read this in some way that being involved in sexual relationship is defiling or that women defile men, then you've missed the point. I want to read that again because if you read it in a certain way, it almost sounds like women are bad and being involved in a sexual relationship within marriage is somehow bad and going to defile you. That's not at all what's being said. It says, these are those who did not defile themselves with women for they kept themselves pure. It's not that celibacy is such a good thing that it makes you more pure. It's that they weren't married and therefore being involved in sexual relations would have defiled them. Are you with me? See, that's an important distinction. I think in the culture and even in the church today, we've just sort of given up on this idea of, you know, staying pure before uh, marriage. And we've just said, well, that's an old way of thinking now. But uh, I grew up in a generation and as a Christian believing that the Bible teaches very clearly that we are to keep ourselves pure before marriage. Amen? And that is not a popular way of thinking. That is not a cultural accepted norm. I've had many conversations with people in the world, and when I share with them that, you know, as Christians, we endeavor, certainly, uh, by faith and through the strength of Jesus Christ, to enter into marriage, not having involved ourselves in that type of relationship until we're married, uh, that uh, people look at you like you're crazy. But I also remember growing up in a time, and some of you who are older will remember this as well, where if you, if you admitted to or said that you were living with someone before you were married, it was like, you, if you were doing that, you certainly didn't admit to it. It was considered to be wrong, even culturally. Today, boy, has the needle moved. I mean, that's like considered nothing now compared to what's going on in our world. But there's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that says marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. What does that mean? Exactly what I just said. That means that marriage should be honored by all. If you're going to be involved in a sexual relationship, it should be within the confines of marriage. A man and a woman in, in marriage, a committed marriage for life. And that's the definition of marriage that the Bible gives us. By the way, any other definition isn't marriage at all. Notice it goes on to say the marriage bed kept pure. That, that simply means that Sexual relations within the confines of marriage is pure. It's not defiling. So that means that what we just read in Revelation doesn't say that somehow sex is bad. That's the point I'm making. And I know it's Sunday morning. You're not supposed to say those words in church. But the Bible does, so I guess I'm on good authority. Anyway, it goes on to say God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So that's sin, to be involved in sex outside of your marriage would be adultery. To be involved in sex outside of marriage in general by not being married would be sexual immorality. So that kind of takes care of that, right? So don't let anybody tell you any different. But it's important to read this and understand that that's what's being said here. Because they are called to be celibate, because they are called to live outside of marriage, they're not to be married, to be involved in that kind of a relationship would be defiling. Are you with me if you are? Say amen. Okay, so no confusion there. I would, man, you know, it makes me crazy that throughout the centuries, men, especially those in power, have done their best to make women look bad and seem bad. And this, this verse can be used in that way, inappropriately, to, to kind of make it seem like women are bad. 
and defiling. And that, that's the last thing that God is saying in his word here. So I wanted to address that. But God will call this 144,000 to be celibate. They will not marry. They won't be sexually immoral. They won't be involved in that way. And to, to just kind of make this clear, celibacy is far from God's design for men and women. If you read Genesis chapter 2, you'll learn that. Very far from God's design. But even Jesus said there are times when certain individuals are called to be celibate. This would be a group of individuals. Given the circumstances, uh, it made sense or will make sense. Now, this in no way promotes celibacy as some kind of a super spiritual lifestyle choice. And the idea that leaders in the church should remain celibate is ridiculous. There's no teaching in the Bible that promotes that. And, of course, marrying a woman never defiles a man. In fact, it's been my experience that it makes us better. Amen, men? All right. (laughs) Okay. This group of individuals follow the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, wherever he goes. But can I say this? They follow Jesus on the earth. They follow Jesus into heaven. I hope you're following Jesus today. I love that song. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. They came to that conclusion in their life. And even in death, they continue to follow Jesus. They were purchased from among men and offered as the first fruits to God and the Lamb. Offered. Do you see that phrase that's used? Offered as if they were a sacrifice. And and so many times in the scriptures, martyrs are described in that way as like sacrifices. Jesus himself is the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. So this language seems to indicate to me that they were in fact martyred. But no lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. That is to say the things they said were true. And I want to just stop there for a minute. These are 144,000 Jews in the future. We've talked about them a lot. They're called by God to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. They'll pay for that ministry with their lives. But it's important to note that no lie is found in their mouths. That is, everything they say about God is true. Oh, that we would have that same ministry, that no lie would be found in our mouths, that everything we say about God would be true, that we would preach the truth. They're blameless. You can't look at their lives and say, this is out of line alignment. This, this isn't consistent with what you say. So what they said and how they lived was the same. That is what it means to be holy. That is the very definition of holy. Not perfect, but holy. That no lie is found in your mouth and that you're blameless. That is, you say what's true and you live the truth. That is what it means to be holy. By the way, this group of individuals are often confused with the church because they're very similar to the church. And because we're similar to the 144,000, I would say that a lot of what is true of them needs to be true of us. Not the celibacy part, but a lot of what is said about them needs to be true in our lives. And I think if we just take that last part, as I ask Anthony to come up and we prepare to receive communion, I think if we just take that last part, that no lie is found in their mouths, and they're blameless. And we recognize it's not saying they were perfect. It's saying that they were holy. It's saying that they were living the truth, speaking the truth, sharing the truth, preaching the truth. Then that is how we are called to live. And may we, like them in the future, may we live lives that are holy as he is holy. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We've been challenged today with the truth of your word, and 
Some of it may not really be something some of us have heard before. And some of what we've talked about may make people feel bad. Or their reaction to it may be that they feel badly. But Lord, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but we ask that you would just restore us and forgive us and cleanse us of all sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we are made holy in Jesus, may we be holy in Jesus, only speaking the truth, testifying to the truth of your word and living our lives consistent with that truth. We know that Jesus came and died on the cross. We know that he rose again on the third day. And that as we acknowledge that truth through this time of communion, we are saying we are holy in you. We are set apart for you. We will live our lives for you and spend eternity with you. That is our great hope. That is the faith we have in this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.